We are continuing our series through the Hebrew Scriptures. And, um, you know, we've talked about that for many weeks now. I know that if you have not been with us every week or you're new, you might not know the whole backstory, but we have so much to cover today. I don't have much time for review. I will say we were starting our seventh book of the Hebrew Scriptures. There's 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. We're starting number seven today. And here's what we've covered so far. We have um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and today we start Judges. Now, the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are all part of the, um, we call it the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses or, you know, the Torah. And we, the back story before Moses' generation was alive and then his story, their story as Israel came out of slavery and through the wilderness years. And then Joshua was the story of them entering back into the land of Canaan, where their ancient ancestors once lived. They were promised as their dwelling place. They came back to Canaan, the promised land, and they had to settle down and fight their battles and all that good stuff there. And we saw Joshua the last couple weeks. Today we're going to begin Judges. And and this is going to be a few weeks, a couple of few weeks here. So we're going to make another little mini-series out of this, a little limited series that we are calling The Rescuers. The rescuers, and that's what we're going to talk about here, because uh, these judges are also called deliverers. Judges are deliverers or rescuers, and we'll we'll see more about that in just a moment here. But let me give you a little catch up from where we were just at. A couple weeks ago, we saw that when Joshua finished helping the Israelites settle into the land of Canaan, he kind of hung up his cleats early. Joshua didn't stay in leadership until the day he died, like Moses did before him. Joshua helped them come in and settle the land, get in their place, and then he, he steps back to, and hangs up the cleats so he can go home and kind of build his own home, settle his own family, his own kids and grandkids and heritage, and they're going to kind of, they're, they're go back home and take care of their own family matters. So he, he's no longer leading them. He, they don't need a military leader. They still have enemies around them. They're surrounded still by other forces. There's people in their land that are still a potential threat. But they have, they have settled strong enough to where they don't need to worry about being weak. They, all the, the land has been divided to the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone's got their own tribes, got their own space, and every, every tribe has its own subdivisions of people and families within that tribe. And so they have the land divided. They're settled down. They're at peace, though there's trouble around them potentially. They're strong. And Joshua says, I'm going home. What Joshua said at the very end of his leadership is he says, look, I'm not your boss anymore. I'm not your leader anymore. So you got to decide if you're going to trust the Lord and serve him or if you're going to go your own direction. That's your call. I can't own that for what you do. But he said, as for me and my family, we'll serve the Lord. We saw that a couple weeks ago, right? We pick up the story there in the book of Judges, chapter 2, and verse 6. It says, after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. Verse 7 says, and the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So though Joshua wasn't in charge the same way anymore, they still, the people still served the Lord because he was around. He was there somewhere. And they respected his leadership. And it was not like, this is important, it was not like the whole nation of Israel ever fully bought into the whole God thing, right? We saw that all the way through since they were freed out of slavery. No one had ever fully just bought into the whole trust God, serve God story all the way through. There's all sorts of crazy moments along the way. But in this part of their history, 
They had leadership like Joshua. And so as long as they were alive, they kind of followed the plan. They kind of followed the teachings that were given to them by, by the Lord and the, the, the laws that he gave their nation. Remember, he gave them laws because they never governed themselves in slavery. Laws to govern themselves by that would be strong nation-building ideas, civil laws, judicial principles, health code laws, uh, moral laws, just all sorts of things. And, and they, they, they had that. And as long as Joshua was alive and as long as the other leaders who helped lead the nation with Joshua were alive, everyone stayed kind of on track. But then it says in verse 10 that after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord nor remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. So eventually everyone passes on the scene, another generation grows up, and they make, a, they make, a, a, they make a change in direction. And this is not unusual. This is, this is as normal and some level as humanity's been around. On some level, we all know this, but most of us have been around for multiple generations. We were, we were young growing up, and we're, we've watched two or three grow up since we've gotten older, right? It's just a natural thing for generations to grow up and to, and to want to, you know, find their own path and to think that, you know, we know more, you know, we, we, we're a little bit enlightened, we're sharp. Um, some other ideas are old ideas, old thinking now. And then we got some different, we, we, we just, we're just we're sharper. And, and we've all been there. You know, we all get old enough eventually to kind of appreciate the wisdom that came before, especially in Western cultures, perhaps. We, we get to a spot where we um, don't always respect it like some places do, but we come, get older, we start realizing, oh, you know, but for, for, for a season, and, and sometimes for our whole lives, we just think, yeah, you know, we're the smart ones. And so this generation grows up, and, and they don't remember. All the stories about growing out of wilderness, all the stories of settling the land, that was their, that was their parents' stories. That was their grandparents' stories. Those are, the stories are legends. Did they happen? I guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, they're great. The laws, we've heard them all. We know. But everyone kind of forgets, and time goes on. In fact, it says in verse 13, that they abandoned the Lord and served Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. So what happens is, is basically they got to a point where they said, you know, there's just other forms of, of you know, religion than just what we were handed. There's, you know, you know, they have all these other forms of religion and, and, you know, whatever, spirituality, whatever it may be. Like, for example, we have, you know, Baal. Baal was a big form. I could get into a whole sermon about Baal and Ashtoreth. I won't, because we don't have time. But this form of Baal worship was a major regional thing. He was a god of fertility, which meant a lot of things for crops and livestock and human life and all sorts of stuff. But there's a lot, and some of it was just fairly normal, but some of it was fairly freaky. The religious devouts did child sacrifice. You had bestiality practices and all sorts of things built into the code. I, we don't have time to get into it all. Ashtoreth was the goddess. It was, she was called the queen of heaven, and they usually ended up linking her with any number of other you know, male deities that they worshipped at the time, and for obvious male-female reasons. And she was around in, in worship too. But it was a very, very pagan culture in such a way that, and I don't, I don't know how to use the word better than this, um, the, the people who did these things because of the, the unhealth of the sexual behavior and the vile practices of, of, of sacrifice and other things that they did, uh, they, they were so weakened. That, that's one reason why we read the story that when Israel came into the promised land, it was easy just to settle in there. The, the, the nations had weakened themselves through bad directions so poorly. And that, but the nation of Israel had such good foundations and laws to live by, but as they settled in and time went on, everyone starts thinking, you know what? We got a better ideas now. And they began to explore all these other ideas and, and get involved in worshiping these other religions 
and turning away. It says they abandoned the Lord. They just walked away from their faith and said, that's just not for us anymore. Verse 14 says, this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Now, I understand when we read the Hebrew scriptures, and we always conflate the Hebrew scriptures with the Christian story, and it's dangerous. And I also understand that we've been around church for a while. We can, we can get a tone here that can make us think that God's being just petulant with the people. But I want you to understand, when we step away from that, just that, that, that framework and how it's, how it's even worded by the scribes of the day, and see what God is saying here. What God is saying is, look, I will love you all. I want relationship with you. I brought you out of slavery. Didn't ask a thing out of you. Just brought you out of slavery just because you needed it. I promise your answers that you'd be there. You got yourself in a tough spot. I stepped in. I brought you out. You're strong. I did that for you. And then God's like, I, I decided I wanted to offer you a, a deal, a covenant relationship. That's what the Hebrew scriptures are about, a covenant relationship of a people as a nation with God. He said, I made a covenant with you that if you want me to continue to be this extra extraordinarily involved in your lives, I'd love to be. And what I, what, your job is to trust me and follow me. And I'll give you some principles to live by. I'll give you some ways to live. And I will be there and I'll, I'll be strong for you. That's our relationship. But if you don't want that, it's a, free, it's a free world. I made you that way. And so he was there. That's why they had all the victories. That's why they had the, the, that's why they had the miracles that we read about that are so jaw-dropping. But now they've come to a spot where they've settled into the, the promised land. Years have passed by. New people have grown up to be the big people. And now they're saying, eh, whatever. I don't know if I, I'm just done with that. We're over that. And what happens in the story is God says, okay, I'm not forcing a relationship upon you. If you want to do this without me, I love you. You're free. You know, I'll let you walk away and do it your way. But the problem with walking from God and doing it their way without that, that relationship that they built in that covenant relationship is also meant they're doing it their own way in, in dealing with their enemies, dealing with the threats around them, dealing with how they weaken their, na their nation through the practices and the, the decisions they made. And in time, they got conquered. In time, they got oppressed. In time, they went through challenges. Their enemies ruled over them. When I say the enemies ruled over them, here's what I mean. It could mean that enemies conquered some of their cities, tore down some of their walls, killed some of their people, plundered or worse. We won't get into all that, probably. But what, often what it meant is that they would come and say, we obviously beat you. Now you're going to pay us a tribute money or tax money. And if you don't, we're going to come back and beat you harder. Okay? So you better pay up. And, and this was enough. In fact, honestly, some of the greatest form of ruling over somebody is taxation, isn't it? I mean, to be able to say as an outside force, you'll pay this tribute to us, out of, your, out of your increase, out of your cattle and livestock and crops and stuff, you're going to pay this tribute, it's this tax to us as a foreign nation that's ruling over you. And if you don't pay it, pay it up, we're going to come back and we're going to take it from you and it's going to be painful. And one of the greatest ways to show someone's in charge of you is you pay the money, right? We all understand that's the, who you pay your, your finances to because it's a lot about where your, where your loyalties lie. And so it's a whole thing. And so they get in these bad situations because they would wander far from God, and God would give them consequences, but still wait for them to call. And when they'd reach out to God, he'd be there once again. Now, a cycle happens, and I gotta, I'm setting a lot of groundwork up. Today's a lot of introduction to the next few weeks about the rescuers. But I want to show you, if you can picture like a cycle here. And I'll have a chart with me, but you picture a cycle. Like I'm, I'm trying to go clockwise for your sake. I think I'm doing that right. Okay, anyhow. Um, picture a cycle. Um, 
So on one end, they're there and God's blessed them and things are great. And then in time, they move to a spot where, you know, old folks passed away and another group grows up and they're in charge and they said, ah, that's just old thinking. And they, they move a different direction in, in, their, in their spirituality and their practices and their nation, national dealings and, their, and how they run everything. And it's not wise and it's away from God. And for a while, it's fine. And I want to say this, this is so important to understand about life in general. Most of our decisions have a lagging effect. When we make bad decisions, sometimes it just takes a while for bad consequences to come from. Not always. Sometimes bad consequences come fast. But sometimes it takes, there's a lagging effect. Same with good consequences. Sometimes you do good things, there's a lagging effect to good decisions. So, Brett, I wanted to point you out here this hour. Yeah, what? Um, is doing, are you both doing the Spartan Challenge or just, are you doing the Spartan Challenge? You're doing the Spartan Challenge. Okay, he sent me a copy of it and said, do the Spartan Challenge with us. And we've looked at it every day and thought about it. I did one, one day of, of the leg workout. But, uh, you know, when you start working out, or we talked about this earlier, Keith, this is a big deal too. When you work out, you don't jump in and work out and in one day, look at me, I must break you now. I mean, it's not like it just all of a sudden works, like, right? And so, what's that? Because it doesn't work out that fast, we then get discouraged and think, well, I'm not doing that anymore. That's a lot of work for no results, right? It's a lagging effect of dieting and exercise. And sometimes our bad decisions, there's a lagging effect before consequences catch up. And that sometimes lulls us into security, thinking that good things don't pay off or bad things are no big deal. But sometimes it takes a while in life to, to reap, the, reap the decisions we make. So these people, picture my, my cycle here. They, God would bless them. They'd be strong. They would turn away from God and turn away from wise living. In time, it would catch up to them. They'd end up in a mess of their own making. They would turn back to God and say, God, help us out. And God's like, okay. Hey, God, where are you? God's like, I'm right here where I've always been. I'm, I've always wanted to be involved. He would step back in. He'd help them out. He'd raise up a rescuer or a judge or a deliverer. And then they would be on top again. As long as that judge or rescuer is alive, they'd be fine. And then eventually that person would pass off. And the years would pass and another generation would grow up. And they would decide there's a better way of doing life. And and they're a mess and a lagging effect. They'd end up in trouble again. They'd have another cry out to God and they'd have another deliverer. Do you get the idea without me going on and on? Okay. So anyhow, this is the cycle. If I don't want to read you the verses here of how this worked. Judges 2.18 tells us the story. Whenever God raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and he rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. <clears throat> For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So, that's the cycle. And if you, if you see what I just read and what we just exclaimed, you understand the macro version of the whole book of Judges. Now you know what it's about. Have a great Sunday. You're dismissed. No, no, no. no I'm just kidding. No. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? He stopped, he stopped talking. That's great. Anyhow, um, but... That's the cycle of the book of Judges. Now, I'm going to list for you all the different judges or deliverers, or they're called rescuers in the scriptures here. Judges, deliverers, or rescuers. I'm going to list them for you on the screen here. Are you ready? There was Othniel. He was the relative of, of, of Caleb, one of the spies. Remember Caleb? Othniel, then Ehud, Shamgar. I like that name for some reason. Well, it's just a, it's a, just a Shamgar. So I think something... Um, so it's not like Gwyneth would write one of her stories, you know, the person named Shamgar or something like that. I don't know. Anyhow, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jair, 
Jephthah, Ibsen, Elon, Musk, I mean Elon, um, Abdon, and Samson. These are the, the judges or the deliverers or the rescuers of the story. Now, here's the thing. Some of these rescuers, they have a whole lot of a cool story to tell. And we're going to take a couple of weeks. We're going to take a week on a couple of them. There's two names in that list, and I'll let you guess which ones they are, not out loud. Two of them are going to get their own Sunday because their adventures are so awesome. I want to tell their whole story on, different, on, a, on their individual Sundays for two of them. But some of these people, we don't know much about them at all. Like, they, got, they got like one sentence about them. Oh, yeah, you know, this person did something awesome. You know, okay. So some of them have a long story written and some have short stories. We'll spend a couple of weeks on the exciting ones later. But for today, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about what the whole book of Judges is about, this crazy cycle, and show you two shorter stories that don't, deserve their own, don't have enough material to have their own week, but kind of model to us what the book of Judges is all about. Our goal in this series is to help you understand the narrative flow of the Bible, educational, informational, but also to try to leave you with some inspiration. And that's a hard part for me today because today's a lot of introduction but we're going to try and squeeze some in here along the way. Let's get into the stories, though. First, uh, the judge was Othniel. He passes away. Uh, the nation goes away from God again, ends up in a mess again. The crazy cycle's happening. And then we pick up the story in Judges 3 and verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies, and he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho by the city, the city of Palms. So in the synopsis right there, the Moabite king joins forces with other nations that are not always allies, but they join forces for a common good of defeating the Israelites. And these three nations together overtake and conquer part of Israel, and, and they rule over them. And King, king Moab, who hires the help, is in charge now. It says in verse 14, the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. And again, when I say served him, what I mean is they, they did what everyone does as the ultimate form of servitude. They paid taxes to him. They, 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 they sent him their tribute money and said, obviously we know that if we don't, you're going to come get us. So here's your tribute, you know. And he was their ruler. And they would bring their treasuries, their, their collected money from their increase to him on a regular basis with other people to appease him so that he would let them live you know, he's like, pay me for, to protect you, and if you don't pay me, I won't protect you. Protect, you, protect us from who? From me, <laughs> you know. Oh, okay, I understand. So this is the arrangement they had with Eglon, king of Moab. Verse 15 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. So again, this is the cycle we're talking about in the book of Judges, right? You see the cycle? His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. How many left-handers in the room? Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Left-handers, okay. One, two, three. We had like four. We had like five or six in the last service. How many of you left-handers raised your left hand when I asked you that? I didn't. I raised my right hand. You raised your left hand. You raised your right. Okay, you raised your right, left. Okay, good. So anyhow, we're a minority, but we're cool. They say you think of the opposite side of your brain that your hand, predominant hand, uses, which means that left-handed people are the only ones in our right minds, right? So I don't know if that's true or not. But anyhow, we, um, you know, this guy's left-handed, so I like him already. Anyhow, he, um, he is sent to bring the tribute money. It says the Israelites sent him to deliver the tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. Now, not just him. 
He's going to bring other people because there's too much money for one guy to carry. So him and a group of people are going to bring the money. And God's going to raise him up as a rescuer. Ready for it? It says, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long. So picture a foot-long dagger, double-edged, very sharp. And he straps it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. So unlike most people who carried a sword on the outside where everyone can see it, they have, they have, they have open carry, he had concealed carry. Okay? He, he has his, his, the, he has his uh, um, dagger strapped to the inside of his right thigh where no one can see it. So he's covered, clothing covering it so that way no one knows he, he doesn't look like he's armed because you'd have a big sword if you were armed and he has a little dagger hidden in his side of his right thigh. And he brings this tribute money, okay? It says he brought the tribute money to Eglon who was very fat. Now, I don't think this is the author, of the, 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 the scribes writing judges. I don't think they're trying to body shame Eglon here. That's not the point. The point is his fatness is important, not important, but it's interesting detail to what happens next. So I'll just point out that he's a big boy, okay? That's what they're telling us. Not just big, he's very fat. Okay, anyhow. Um, after delivering the payment, after they brought the money and they delivered it to Eglon, Ehud started home with those who helped him carry the tribute, but when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Now, in other words, they're, they're leaving the, the land of Eglon. There's apparently a landmark where there's some stone idols. And him and the people with him are reached that spot. And he's like, guys, thanks for helping me carry the tribute money to our oppressor. You go home. And he turns around and goes back. He comes to Eglon and says, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them all out of the room. Why would the king send all of his servants out of the room and be left alone with just Ehud? Well, think about it. Because he wasn't afraid of Ehud. You know why he wasn't afraid of Ehud? Because Ehud knew his place. Do you know how he knew Ehud knew his place? He just laid the tribute money at his feet. If you're going to rebel against the king, you don't give him all your money first. Like the ultimate form of homage and obeisance is bringing the money and leaving it there. That's the ultimate act of saying, I know who's the boss. We just left our wealth with you and I, I went away. And the servants have it now. Their nation has it now. He shows up by himself and says, hey, I have a secret message for you. And the king's like, oh, Ehud's back with nobody with him. He, he came alone by himself because it's that secret. So I'm going to respect this guy who is a loyal subject who knows his place and give him a secret audience in return. So guys, leave the room. Let me have a private minute with this guy who knows his place and knows who I am, and, and I have the receipts to prove it in the vault. So everyone leaves the room. And what happens next is the beginning of, well, let's read it. Um, Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room. Now, Ehud, we saw, Eglon, we saw earlier, is a big fat dude. Um, sorry, just what the Bible said. So anyhow, what I want you to understand is this. He is, whatever the royal house looks like, he kind of stays in his chambers. Like you have his own chambers, like a living area, living area outside where people can visit him. He has his bed chambers, most likely, and he has a latrine, we find out, which makes sense. They have a primitive latrine system so people can wash the sewage down into a street nearby. The sewage would probably run in some certain streets. Yuck, you know. But whatever they had, they had a, they had a system. I don't know how it worked. I wasn't there, you know. And yeah, the other latrines. So he has this, all the setup, and he didn't leave. He doesn't go to some other part of the royal place to meet people. Probably because he's a big dude and didn't get around very well. Probably didn't exercise very much. So people came up to his place to visit with him. So when Ehi comes to visit him, he's in his own chambers. 
And everyone leaves the room for the secret message. And then Ehud says to him, I have a message from God for you. Now, folks, that sounds a little more ominous right there. I have a message from God for you. That sounds a little more threatening right there. It says, as King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. It just got real. You came to the church to hear an execution story, right? So they plunged it into his belly. And he has to plunge it hard. It says, the dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So he gets up and he stands up and he gets a good opening apparently. The guy stands up and just thrusts this thing deep and hard to get to the vital organs. And the guy's so fat that the fat just kind of swallows up the dagger. And Ehud did not pull out the dagger. I imagine not. He's like, I wanted that souvenir as a keepsake. But it's just not worth it, you know. I might lose my hand next. So he does not pull it out. And says, and the king's bowels emptied. The king's bowels emptied. Now, that's not surprising either. If you've ever seen execution or hear stories about people getting hung or whatever, all of a sudden people are getting executed, they lose, their, they lose their continence. So as he kills him, his bowels empty. That's kind of gross. Speaking of bathroom talk, are you ready? It says, Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. What in the world, right? That's gross. But, but considering the alternative of walking out the front door, being found out as an assassin and being killed, I guess going out of the latrine and getting a really good shower or 10 later on is a better alternative. So he decides to get out with his life and he escapes down the latrine and makes his getaway. Verse 24, after Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room were locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king did not come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sirah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud called, sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. The Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from a crossing. In other words, they secured an escape route or a call for help, reinforcements, whatever. And they, and they trapped in their enemy. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. They're back in the cycle again. They're back on top again. But, but what happens, as we saw earlier, is, is that the, the judge would eventually pass on, and another generation would grow up way before 80 years are up. Remember, there's a lagging effect, though. They're, they're, they're walking away from God, but they're still enjoying prosperity. And eventually, those choices catch up to them, and they end up in a mess again. They call out to God for help again, and God raises up another deliverer, another judge, another rescuer. Do you see the pattern? I'm just showing a, a, an introduction this week to the book of Judges. I'll give you one more short story, and then we'll put a bow on this today with some a quick practical application. The other story takes place after this. Israel's gone off the rails again, went through national hard times, turned back to ask God for help, and God raised up another rescuer, a spiritual leader whose name was Deborah. 
We're going to read her story, starting in Judges chapter 4, verse 4. At this point, by the way, uh, the king Jabin of Hazor was ruling over Israel. In Judges 4, 4, it says, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. Now, I want to just brag on Deborah. Okay, can you just brag on her for a minute? I think Deborah is the most outstanding of all the rescuers or all the judges. Okay, as we read the stories, there's a lot. Like that. We saw the list earlier. She's the best of them. She's the only woman, and she's the best of the judges or the rescuers. Because every single one of the men in the story have some serious applause. And this is not my opinion. This is ancient literature, okay? In these ancient stories, every single one of the men who judged or rescued Israel, they had some moral flaws. They had some really weird family dynamics like Jephthah and other things going on. They were all kind of goofed up in some way. And there's a few people, we don't know their story, so they may have pretty cool stories, but of the stories we know, Deborah is like, this woman is the best of the rescuers in the whole book of Judges. She's amazing. She's a prophet, it says, and she judged Israel. In fact, it goes on to explain in verse 5 that she would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. I, I didn't say this earlier, but I want to say it now. Not every rescuer of Israel in this time period, called the time period of the judges, not every rescuer was a military leader. Sometimes they were civil or other kinds of leaders. Deborah was a prophet and a civil leader. She would sit under a spot called the Palm of Deborah. The nation would come to her because she had a relationship with God, and they would come to her and ask her questions. Hey, Deborah, what does God think about this? Hey, I, 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 God, Deborah, we're having relationship issues. Hey, Deborah, could you settle a civil matter? She would be judicial, civil involved, spiritual advice, uh, point people to God. She, would, she, would, she was just a whole spiritual leader for the nation at a time they were far away from their faith. One day, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali. She told Barak, Deborah said to Barak, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun and Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, the enemy, along with his chariots and warriors of the Kishon River, and there I'll give you victory over them. So she says, Barak, you know, you know who I am, you know you respect me. God is telling me to tell you to get the armies together from these two tribes, 10,000 people, and go get us set free from King Jabin. Go fight Sisera, his general. And Barak's answer to her is peculiar. It just is. He says to her in verse 8, Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. She just literally told him to go do this. He says, I'll go. I'll only go if you go with me. Why would he say that? And, and there's a lot of speculation on why he, he took this path. Two most common sensible answers as to why. The one reason is because he was afraid. He's like, God said to do what? Uh, I, I'm, look, you, you know, we respect you, but I, I don't know. If you go with me, I basically need you to hold my hand. If you go with me, I'll go, but I'm not going to go without your help. That's one possibility. The other reason he may have said this, I'll only go if you go with me, was for clout. And the best way I can explain that to you Bible nerds who've been around a while and know the future story we're going to get to of King Saul later on. Remember when Saul was kind of off the rails himself and King, the prophet Samuel was respected. Everyone revered Samuel. And Saul at one time was, was showing with the people's respect and Samuel, he said, Samuel, you stay here. Don't you go. You, you honor me in front of the people. If they see you with me and supporting me, then it will give me clout because they respect you. Remember that story? We'll get to that someday. It could be that Barak was like, Deborah, you're Deborah. Everyone... I'm supposed to lead these people. If they see you with me and I'm in charge and I'm calling the shots and you're going along with my leadership, then that will give me clout. 
So you come with me and give me clout. Or I'm afraid. I don't know if it was fear or clout he was looking for, but he said to her, basically, I don't care. I'm not going unless you go with me. Very well, she replied. I will go with you, but you will receive no honor from this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. That's, what's gonna, that's what it's going to be now. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. At Kedesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went with him, and Deborah also went with him. When Sisera, the enemy, was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for nine, all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors and marched from Hereshoth Hegium to the Kaishan River. Now, here's what I want you to see from there. 900 iron chariots would be like a tank battalion today. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a, this is a strong, like there's 10,000 warriors with Israel. There's 900 iron chariots and warriors, too many to number here. So they way have the bigger army. Sisera has the upper hand. This is not good. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak, picture the scene. Picture Lord of the Rings, the battle scene here. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. And when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all of his chariots into a panic. In other words, and some of us, if you ever studied military stories, you wouldn't know how this goes. Sometimes a war in warfare, half the trick is, is, um, is your confidence. It's the, it's the mental game. You know, if, you, if you have a lack of leadership or there's confusion or there's, you know, fear sets in or panic, things, people will turn on each other and start killing each other in the chaos. It's a whole thing. And, and God just sends chaos here and everyone panics and Israel just comes down and just wipes them out. Here's the crazy part. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Can I just point out in the story today that the men are kind of not very impressive in the story today? Like on one end you got Barak, I'll only go if you go with me. You know, like, what? Okay. I want the clout that comes from you, Deborah. I want the clout of your, of your leadership showing me that I'm in charge or I'm afraid or whatever. And now you have Sisera. Here's Sisera's story. Folks, we have the bigger army. I'm with you guys in the bigger army. I'm your great fearless leader. Oh no, we're getting beat. See ya. And he runs away on foot, leaves him there. Like what in the world? So what does Barak do? Barak's like, um, Barak chases the chariots. Barak lets him run. He chases the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harish of Hegium, killing all of Sisera's warriors that a single one was left alive. But Sisera gets away. Where does he go? Verse 17 says, Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Why? Because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. In other words, Sisera says, I'm going toward this friendly people. And Heber's family is on friendly terms with our kingdom. So I'm going to go there and find refuge because I know they're going to be looking for me now. And I don't want to die. So he goes to, the, to Heber's tent and he comes to the tent of Jael, his wife. Verse 18 says, Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she, won, she did better than that. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag. Apparently that tastes better than a leather bag. And, and she covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you if anyone is here, say no. So in other words, he's like, she's going to hide him like we saw Rahab hide the spies last week. She lays him down, covers him with a blanket, and he's like, here, give me something to drink, here's some milk, and then keep an eye open for people looking for me. So she goes outside of the tent and leaves him alone in there, and he's laying under the covers. 
And, and probably for a while, he's wide awake. His adrenaline's running. Every time he hears the noise, he's like, is that someone looking for me? But in time, he settles down. In time, he, in time, he begins to unwind. He's exhausted. He's going to fall asleep. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, guys, here it goes. Ready? When he fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand, and she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. What in the world? Okay, I, this is, I'm impressed. You ever see those people who split wood? They split wood, and they're like, it takes them like 18 chops to get through, and then somebody else comes along, and one chop and it's split. I mean, okay, she knew how to handle her, uh, a hammer and a tent peg, apparently. Don't mess with JL. That's my, my advice if you ever go back in the time machine, okay? Don't mess with this woman. So she comes up, this guy's sleeping with a tent peg and a hammer, and she's like, whoop, and she did not miss. Right through his temple, into the ground. That is a crazy story. I know it's pretty gory today, isn't it? These are the, si these are the times they were living in. This is, the this is the history of the world in this time period. He dead. When Barak came looking for Sisera, J.L. went out to meet him. She says, come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with a tent bag through his temple. Just another Tuesday, you know. It's a crazy story. Chapter 5, we'll read two verses only. Chapter 5 begins on that day. Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. So this is called the Song of Deborah. This is called the song. She writes a song, and Barak and her teach the people the song. Here's the first line of the song, verse 2. It says, The Israel's leaders took charge, and the people gladly followed, praise the Lord. And the song is just about what God did for them that day. The military exploits, the victories. There's even a part of the song about Cicero laying dead at Jael's feet. I mean, it's a whole thing. Why would they write a song about this? Because Deborah is trying to do something. She has watched the people Walk away from God, get in trouble. God steps back in with a rescuer. They come back to God for a while, then they stray again. And so she's doing her best to say, if I put the message to music, if I use the powerful medium of music, maybe people will remember a catchy ditty. Maybe they'll remember the tune and they'll stick with the Lord longer because of the message in song form. So she writes a song to keep him on track. Does it work? Maybe for a while longer. I don't know, but eventually they go off track again. But Deborah's a remarkable leader. Anyhow, there are some stories for you today. You're welcome, okay? So hey, there's so much, folks. There is so much to explore in this crazy era of Israel's history. It is, it is crazy, right? But for today, I wanted to lay an introduction for you as we start talking about the rescuers. There's some pretty cool stories ahead and some good lessons to learn for our lives. Today, I didn't get as much inspiration in here because we're basically dealing with information and introduction. But for today, I want to end by looking at the macro picture and take some personal instruction from this time period for your lives. And it's always tricky because, again, when we inflate Old Covenant Hebrew Scripture stories with God's covenant with a nation to the Christian message of God's love for individuals, you get some really weird doctrines and you cross those ideas together, and that's where we have been around that much of my life. It just does not help anybody. So we don't want to do that. But what I want you to notice is something about the character of God in this story. As they would wander from God, and as they would wander away from wise living, and they would end up in a mess because of it, they would come back to God, and he would rescue them. And I want to apply that to our Christian life and show you one statement before we go. 
Because in our life, when we wander from God as individuals, when we wander away from wise living and things get messy as a result, what do we do? And by the way, can I just say this? We all do that. Uh, Isaiah the prophet once wrote, all of, all of us like sheep have gone astray. I mean, we all do that. At some point, we all get into dumb points in our lives. We've all, I've, all, I've, I've played some stupid games and won some stupid prizes, and so have you. I mean, we've all been there. At some point in our journey, when we walk down a dumb path, walk away from God, or down an unwise living path, maybe it's a small thing, maybe it's a huge thing, maybe it's a short time, maybe it's a long time, we end up in a mess as a result. Here's what happens to us. Sometimes, sometimes, we are afraid to come back to God. Sometimes we are ashamed to come back to God. You know why we're ashamed to do it? Because we're thinking, well, what's that, what does that look like? Like I'm just using God? Like we walk away from God, like, I don't need you in my life, and then, oh, I'm, I need you now, I'm in a mess. So we're afraid to come back, maybe because someone told us, oh, sure, treat God like he's your genie in the bottle whenever you need him. And I said, look, I, God's not a genie in the bottle, I agree with that. But sometimes people guilt you and shame you into wanting to come back to God when you get into a, a mess of your own making. Maybe you heard that in church somewhere, or some kind of harsh version of religion. Or maybe it's just your own natural self because you're not a narcissist. You're not narcissistic enough to think that God is there to, to jump when you say jump, and so you do feel weird about going back to God that when you've walked away because you need him now, so you feel ashamed to do so. That's normal. Here's what I want to say to you. Don't think that way. Listen, when we wander away from God and from wise living, and when things get re- difficult as a result of it, don't be hesitant. Don't be ashamed to make a turnaround. Don't be hesitant. Don't be ashamed to come back to God. Here's, listen, God is not a jilted or fragile ex. You had somebody, an old friend in your life or a former lover or somebody in your life, and then you, they hurt you, they'll never get over it. And then when you try to, if you ever need them, they're like, oh, well, I need him. They're going to give you the treatment. God is not, some of us, that's how we treat people. Like, oh, well, well now you need me. God is not petulant, petty or petulant. He is not jilted or, fra- he's anti-fragile. He is your maker. He has big shoulders and he loves you. And that's the central message of God's heart to you is he loves you. And yes, loving you is letting you go away. Loving you is letting you ignore the relationship and figure out how that works out. And loving you is stepping back in. But sometimes we're afraid to come back and we've wandered away and we find ourselves in a mess because we're thinking, oh, God's probably like me. And he's like, oh, I'm done with you. And God's like, no, are you kidding me? Yeah, but it's not my first time, God. It wasn't the judge's first time either. It happens over and over again, but God says, I'm bigger than that. I just love you. I just want you. I want to leave you with a statement today. Usually I come up with a statement that myself or my team, usually my team, Anthony helps me a lot with this. We we try to craft a sentence or a statement to kind of help summarize what we're talking about that day. I want to give you a statement in a moment here, but the statement I'm going to give you is not mine. It's not my team's. It's a quote from the Christian scriptures, like 1,500 years later. It's a quote from the Christian scriptures um, by a man whose name was James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Like Jesus was, you know, 
same mother, different father. Jesus was origin born. But the same, same half-brother of Jesus, James, who later believed that his brother Jesus was also his Lord and Savior and gave his life to preaching the good news of his, of his message and ultimately died as a martyr proclaiming the good news and, and, and establishing and spreading the, 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 the local church. And James wrote a letter in the Christian scriptures and he makes a statement that talks about what we're talking about today that we can picture in this ancient Hebrew scripture story of ancient Israel in the time of the judges. He makes a statement that is so good I wanted to leave it with you today because it summarizes the whole topic. He's, James says, come close to God and God will come close to you. That's it. Come close to God and God will come close to you. And again, I know that that's uncomfortable for some people, especially when we're stupidly religious and we're like wanting to rant against the world who doesn't appreciate God the way we think they should. Or we're, maybe we're parents freaking out for our kids. Like, don't tell people that they can just play this game where they can, you know, go away from God and then just come back whenever they want him and he'll be there. Don't tell them that. They'll get ideas that you can just do whatever you want to. That's, that's fear-based leadership. That's fear-based parenting. That's fear-based everything. Stop that. No one is saying that walking away from God and wise living is a good choice because the mess we find ourselves in is never worth it. The messes are never worth it. We're not saying them like, oh, I'm glad I found myself in this mess. It's, it's not how it works. What we're saying is that inevitably when we find ourselves away from the Lord in our own making in life and we feel on top of whatever we're going through, a hesitancy to come back as if God might just be tired of us, has put us on the shelf, is just done with us, is over it. It's over the relationships. We're afraid to come back. That's the lie that someone's telling you, that God is, never feels that way. He is right there saying, I love you. I want us in relationship. I just haven't forced it on you. But you come close to God. He will come close to you. And for some of us, we're like, Arlen, that's nice, but I've wandered a long ways from God in my life. Long ways, long time. It's a long trip back. And my answer is, no, it's not. You may walk away from God in your life, but God doesn't walk away from you. The minute you walk away and say, God, where are you? God's like, I'm right where you left. I'm right where I've always been. Well, God, I want to come close to you. And God never walked away when you did, but when you want to come close to him, guess what God does? When you come close to God, he comes close to you. He doesn't wait. He comes and meets you. He comes running. And it's a short trip back. You know why it's a short trip back? Because God's walking, God's coming close. And he takes bigger steps than we do. It's a very short trip back. And I want you to believe today, wherever you find yourself in life, maybe you need this right now. Or maybe you'll need this one day down the road. Never let where life takes you, where you end up in life of your own doing sometimes, or whatever happens. Never get to the spot where you think, this is my fault, or I've kind of checked out on God, or I've gone my own direction, and you know, I, don't, I, can't, I can't go to him now. No, 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 don't listen to that. You come close to God. He will come close to you. You are loved. And God is not fragile. God is not jilted. God is not sitting back being petty. He loves you, and he takes bigger steps than we do.